from Kurtco Media. Coming up on this episode of Life Done Better. We've collected a lot of evidence. We've got millions and millions of people who have been taking fish oil every day for decades. And what that's revealed now that they are actually crunching the figure is that it has had approximately zero effect. Welcome to Life Done Better. I'm your host, Jill DeJong. Today, I'm talking to nutritionist Monica Ryan-Nagel. She is the host of Nutrition Diva podcast and serves up simple, painless ways to upgrade your eating habits. I invited her to explore, clarify, and maybe debunk some of my most burning nutrition questions. Nutrition advice is not one that fits all, but there are plenty of things that improve most people's health and wellness. Let's explore together so you can feel more informed and make better decisions for yourself. Welcome, Monica. Thank you, Jill. I'm delighted to be with you today. You are an expert. You're an authority. And I want to know everything. (laughs) Of course, we don't have time to talk about everything because, you know, nutrition is so diverse. It's such a great variety to talk about. But personally, I have dealt with nutrition challenges in my life. I was working full time as a model and I was jet lagged, constantly sleep deprived did not eat very well. My main source of food was at restaurants, dining out all the time, processed foods, diet products. I really, really didn't know how to take care of myself. And so I asked a nutritionist for help and that really changed my life. I needed to learn about nutrition. I needed to learn how to cook and that has healed my body. And that's why I'm so, so, so excited to share everything me and Monica have learned in our professional life, but also in our personal life with you. Now, Monica, what are some of your personal challenges that you've dealt with and what started this career for you? Well, first, I just want to say how much I love the way you framed this as a way for people to empower themselves and make better decisions for themselves, because I think that's really key. Sometimes people do have this idea that there's just one right way to put together a healthy diet, and then it's just about having someone give them that golden ticket, that magical prescription. But of course, it's exactly what you just suggested. It is an individual thing. We do need to take into account our needs, our lifestyle, the demands that we're placing on our body and what's going to work for us and find our way to a solution that not only makes us feel good, but that's sustainable for us, right? That we can actually pull off with whatever else we're doing. And that's going to look so different depending on, as you said, when you were modeling, you were traveling constantly, very rarely at home cooking your own meals. So you probably needed slightly different strategies and solutions than a mom who not only has to feed themselves, but is also feeding their children and has to get meals on the table for them. So it's so important to realize that it is going to be a one size fits one solution. And that, yeah, my role is really just to kind of help you curate all that information so that you can make those good choices that support your health. So you, you said one nutritional advice suits one person, right? It's so individual. Like we talk a lot about bio-individuality. And so can you name a few things that you were dealing with yourself just to get an idea of your personal challenges? Absolutely. And I think they've changed over the years. You know, I've been feeding myself for a long time now. And as I've gone through different phases of my life, the challenges have changed. And one of the things that I'm conscious of right now, as I'm getting a little bit older, is how important it is for me to continue to get enough protein. 
In fact, we need more protein as we get older just to kind of hold steady, right, in order to prevent the loss of muscle mass and everything that leads to that. So I'm aware that this is a challenge that I need to pay attention to. And the only reason that is challenging for me is that I'm not really drawn to meat. I'm not a vegetarian. I'm perfectly willing to eat meat. It just doesn't excite me. I find it kind of boring. <laughs> I find it boring to eat and boring to cook. And so for me, I always have to be conscious of, you know, am I including some protein in this meal? Did I get enough protein today? That's something that's kind of always running in the back of my mind. But that certainly wasn't anything that I was worried about in my 20s. And I probably didn't need to be then. No, it always does change, right? Mm -hmm. The challenges change and also the level of being healthy changes because maybe 10 years ago, I thought I was pretty healthy and because I was buying most food at Trader Joe's and I was now cooking my own meals. And um, so when I look back now, I'm like, oh, that's funny. I thought I was healthy then. And I'm sure in five years, if we speak again, I'm like, oh, it's a whole other level because there are constant upgrades that we can implement in our lives. But how do we translate what we know into what we do? How does something new become a real habit? That is actually the key to everything, right? Consistency is everything, but a lot of people struggle to be consistent with the things that they want to do. And I think one thing that undermines us here is this myth that if you just repeat something for 21 days or 30 days, you will have created a habit. You've probably heard that, right? It takes 21 yeah. days to create a habit. I don't know where that came from. I don't think there's really any actual evidence to, to back that up, but it's become this ingrained belief. And so people will do things like sign up for a 30-day challenge. And they'll figure, well, if I just do this for 30 days, by the end, I will have established this new habit. But learning what you need to do to do something for 30 days is completely different than figuring out what you'd need to do to make it an ongoing part of your life. You know, during that 30 days, you're counting down, right, to day one, to day zero, when you get to stop. <laughs> It's a completely different mindset to uh, if you're just thinking, like, how do I get through this 30 days? Then if you're thinking, what is going to make this important to me so that I will continue to do it? And so I think that's why that boot camp and, and challenge and 30 day this and that culture sometimes actually works against our ability to be more consistent with our habits because we put all our energy into some big dramatic thing for 30 days and then we go back to more or less what we were doing before. And another aspect of learning to be more consistent is to keep your changes small enough that you can actually sustain them. Yeah, that they don't feel overwhelming, that you're not getting cranky and you're like, God, I can't wait to be done with this, right? It's got to actually make you feel better on a daily basis. For me, being consistent means to have a really strong desire, really strong why are you wanting to do this thing that you're wanting to do, right? Absolutely the heart of it all. And sometimes people skip over that step. They have a, a kind of a superficial goal or they've absorbed somebody else's goal, you know, a societal or a cultural goal. But you know what? Doing hard things or even just doing easy things consistently takes a lot of effort. And as human beings, we're sort of hardwired to avoid effort, to avoid unnecessary yeah. effort. We're kind of evolutionarily designed to be lazy. So in order to be willing to make that effort on an ongoing basis, we have to have that compelling why, that reason that drives us, that makes it worth our while. So the fact that you're so clear on what it is that you want and why it's important to you is half the battle right there. 
And then, of course, there are other aspects of that, you know, like when you go to your refrigerator, 95% of the stuff in there is healthy. So you don't then have to battle yourself like, well, I should have this fruit salad, but I want to have this eclair or something like what you're looking at is all food that you've chosen that is going to support your goal. So you've also set yourself up for success there. You've really put a lot in place that helps you be consistent. That's a prescription for success. But unfortunately, Jill, you're the exception to the way people go about trying to make positive change. You're right. I'm disciplined in some ways, but I make it easy on myself because I won't have the things that I was going to eat that I shouldn't be eating in my house. I don't have it. Absolutely. It's not there. So when I constantly pull open the drawer or the fridge, nothing, <laughs> nothing different is in there, right? The 10th time you're like, well, that's another carrot then, right? <laughs> There's no cookies today. And there may be a day that I want cookies and I'll make some homemade cookies, but it's not sure. there every day. And also, talk to um, some friends of mine who were saying, well, we really need your advice. And I said, well, tell me what you need. They actually already had the answer. They just came out of the water. They were kiteboarding and it was 4 p.m. in the afternoon and they already had a beer. And they said, well, we probably should uh, drink less alcohol. I'm like, why do you drink alcohol after, you know, you do sports anyway? Well, it's fun. It's relaxing. You know, we're hanging out. Well, I said, then you exactly know where you need to start. And it's oftentimes, though, we already know what we should reduce, do less of, and mm -hmm. replace with other habits. Well, what do you do after 7 p.m.? Like, what I do at 7 p.m.? Well, I love my tea. I drink hot chocolate with raw cacao. I may have a kombucha or a lemon tea with honey. I mean, I have plenty of beverages. I don't prefer alcohol over, over those. So uh, it's up to you to find out what you like, because what I do is not what you should be doing. It's just wonderful to actually understand that sometimes we really feel like we don't know where to start, but we do. You couldn't be more right. You know, when I first started in this profession of, of nutrition, I thought that one of the ways that I would really help people would be to give them information about what they needed to do. And I very quickly realized exactly what you just said. They kind of knew what they needed to do, but they were having trouble making themselves do it. And they needed help more on the implementation and the behavior change part of it than they needed me to tell them you should maybe have a cup of tea after dinner instead of three beers. You know, they knew. But, you know, this is such a prevalent thing that there's actually a scientific term for this. It's called the intention behavior gap. And that doesn't sound too official, but it is. There are whole areas of scientific research devoted to the intention behavior gap. You can go to whole conferences on it. And they have kind of figured out some of the things that help close that gap, that help people make that leap from, I know what I should be doing. I just don't seem to be able to make myself do it. And one of the things that they talk about is self-efficacy. And that kind of has two parts. One is we have to believe that what we're going to do is actually going to benefit us. We have to have some confidence that it's going to have a, a positive effect or we're not going to bother. But the other thing is we have to believe that we can do it. We have to feel confident in our ability to do it. Or again, we're just not going to bother. We're going to give up because we feel like it's just too much. And so it's really sort of a sweet spot when you're looking for a change that you want to make. You want to stake something out that you feel like, yeah, that's meaningful. That will actually translate into a meaningful benefit for me, but not so ambitious that you're not really confident that you're going to be able to stick with it. And that's going to make it really easy for you to bail out. So it's an interesting insight when we're choosing what kind of a change or a behavior or a goal that we want to set for ourselves to look for that sweet spot. Yeah, between, yeah that would really make a difference. And I can do that. 
And I think there's another aspect of that. And you already have kind of hinted at this. You said, oh, in the evenings after 7 p.m., I love my kombucha. I have this favorite tea that I so look forward to. So you're not just saying like, nope, I told myself I wasn't going to have any wine. So I'm just going to sit here on my hands, not drinking wine and thinking about how much I would rather be drinking a glass of wine. You've actually come up with something that is equally enjoyable that you can also look forward to. And I think we forget to do that sometimes when we're trying to take something out of our lives that maybe is not serving us, that we're overdoing, but we don't take the time to decide what's going to replace that, what's going to bring some pleasure, some reward into that moment of my life so that I'm not just here missing my treat or my enjoyment. You know, I've actually come up with a creative way to create a special moment for myself or a ritual or a pleasure to replace that. So when people try to go alcohol-free, like make sure you got some really fun and and creative alcohol-free options to look forward to, not just your glass of, you know, tap water. (laughs) That's right. Non-alcoholic Moscow Mule Party. And it does require some creativity. But, you know, that actually makes you honor when you do drink and when you don't drink more. And you Mm -hmm. feel good about yourself because you're like, you know what? Look at me. I said I would and here I'm doing it. But if you do deprive yourself too much, it is going to fire it right back at you. Now, Monica, I would love to dive into some burning specific nutrition questions with you. One of the first questions is about sourdough. Sourdough has been a big trend during COVID. Mm-hmm. I was already making my sourdough bread before COVID, but it definitely you know, increased in the amounts. And I love getting it fresh out of the oven, melt some butter. I mean, it really doesn't need much. It's so good for my happiness. I hear the fermentation process makes it healthier. Can you explain it a little bit? Absolutely. And, you know, this has been such a burning question, not just for you, Jill, but for seemingly everybody in this last year. And so I just happened to do sort of a deep dive into this research to see, is there anything new since the last time I checked this out? And I did find some interesting stuff. And so the answer is there are some ways in which that fermentation process does make sourdough bread a little bit healthier for us in a couple of specific ways. It's kind of not what a lot of people think, though. We've heard so much about probiotic foods and beneficial bacteria and all of that, that people think that that's what makes sourdough healthier is that it's a probiotic food. Not exactly, because, of course, those little yeasty beasties, they die at a fairly low temperature. So although your sourdough starter may have a lot of live bacteria in it, by the time you've baked that into bread, they're all long gone. So it's not a probiotic food. (laughs) But that fermentation process does produce lactic acid as a byproduct of their fermentation. And that has a couple of health benefits and mostly in the realm of releasing some of the mineral content that's naturally present in those grains and making it a little bit easier for you to absorb and sort of deactivating some of the compounds that can sometimes be a little irritating or inflammatory for people who are a little reactive to wheat and some of the fibers in wheat. So it does make it a little bit more digestible little bit more nutritious, but there's a big caveat. And that is that it's still bread. And so it's still not a super nutrient dense food. It is not something that we should be eating a lot more of just because it's sourdough. And it's still kind of important to be emphasizing the whole grain varieties of sourdough over the white flour, or at least not overdoing it with the white flour. I mean, there's nothing better than a sourdough baguette 
I'm not going to say that a whole wheat baguette is completely the same. Yes. So I think it's just a matter, if you enjoy sourdough, you can take pleasure in the fact that there are a couple of little extra benefits to it, but it's still basically the same category of food. It's still bread. It's something that you want to enjoy, but in moderate quantities. And we just want to make sure that that health halo that is maybe around sourdough isn't leading us to eat a lot more of it because we're thinking like, well, you know, it's like chocolate and red wine. They're good for my heart, right? So I'm going to go ahead. and <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I, I love that you say that. And I, I do think you're so right with the, you know, in the moderation, like, sure, enjoy it. Use the best flours, more to the whole grain kind, less white flours, less refined, but don't eat too much of it, right? Yeah. We'll be right back with Monica Reinagel. This episode is supported by another great wellness podcast, The Nutrition Diva. There's a lot of misinformation about nutrition out there, and it can be hard to separate food fact from food fiction. That's where licensed nutritionist and professionally trained chef Monica Reynagel comes in. On Nutrition Diva, Monica debunks nutrition myths and shares science-backed advice to make healthy eating a little bit easier and a lot saner. In just 10 minutes, she gets right to what you need to know about taking care of yourself and answers questions like, is eating late bad for your heart? Do you really need to take nutritional supplements? And what can you do to be a more mindful eater? Listen to new episodes of Nutrition Diva every Wednesday. Follow Nutrition Diva wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. I'm chatting with nutrition expert Monica Reinagel. Now, that also leads me to salt. Do we actually benefit from using salt in our food and what kind of salt? Because my husband grew up in a household in which salt was kind of the devil. Like he barely ate salt until he met me and I love salt and I put it on most of our dishes and I use mineral sea salt and I always say, it's good for you and you're an athlete, you're sweating a lot, you need salt. So maybe you can uh, tell me if I'm right or if I'm wrong or somewhere in the middle. Well, we do need, our bodies do need salt, if for nothing else, to replace the salt that we lose when we sweat. So if your husband's an athlete or guys are really active and sweating a lot, then that will increase you know, the amount of salt that you need just to replace it. But it's really hard not to get enough salt, even from an unsalted diet. Like Nobody's really in danger of salt deficiency. So we don't need to be adding salt to make sure that we're not deficient. But then the question is, how much is too much, right? And that's a really individual question. And there was a long time when salt, we were really afraid of salt. We thought everybody that had any salt was going to have high blood pressure. And, and that turns out not to be true. Most people can tolerate a pretty healthy amount of salt. If your blood pressure is high, then you might need to moderate salt. If it's not, then there's not necessarily any reason to, to worry about it. I mean, if your fingers are so swollen, you can't get your rings off, you might be overdoing it a little bit. But That's a sign. Yeah. Except for people who have like a medical sensitivity to sodium and their blood pressure responds, it's not a big deal. As to the mineral salts, those are great. I use them too. We have all kinds of fun little fancy salts from different places around the world. I don't think that they are significant nutritionally for us. I mean, if the 
teeny, 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 tiny amounts of minerals that are in those salts were enough to move the needle on your nutrition, then I'd have much bigger worries about your diet than what kind of salt you were eating. <laughs> so, it, you know, we don't need those tiny amounts of minerals to make up any kind of gap. We should be getting plenty from the other foods that we're eating. But they certainly are fun, you know, colorful, and they can be, if you have a very refined palate, you may actually be able to taste the difference between a Hawaiian sea salt and a Himalayan sea salt. And, and just, yeah. yeah, just like how people love their wines from all different regions. I actually uh, just added a truffle salt to my collection. Oh, yeah. Oof. Of course. Now that, that's not about salt, That's right? another that's level. That's truffles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Everything truffle for me. So next question, fish oil, is it enough to eat fish twice a week or do we need to supplement for heart health and lower blood pressure? What is the ideal dosage and how do you understand the difference in quality? Jill, if you had asked me this question a year ago, I would have had a very different answer for you because fish oil has been one of the least controversial nutritional supplements pretty much the whole time I've been in this profession. We've just accepted this. these are great for you, these omega-3 fatty acids that you get from fish. Most of us aren't getting enough of them. This is a good idea for everybody. And it's been so popular. It's the third most popular nutritional supplement now for 20 or 30 years. So We've collected a lot of evidence. We've got millions and millions of people who have been taking fish oil every day for decades. And what that's revealed now that they are actually crunching the figure is that it has had approximately zero effect on people's risk of heart disease, on people's risk of having a heart attack, on people's mortality. It doesn't seem to have generated any positive benefit whatsoever. And I, you know, you're saying, yeah, that's disappointing. <laughs> the entire nutrition community, not to mention those who sell fish oil supplements, are making a similar face like, what? That just doesn't even add up. So it's really not looking like such a great investment anymore. It's not cheap, right? Especially to get a nice quality fish oil that doesn't make you burp and, you know, has been filtered and tested for contaminants because, you know, we don't want to be taking in mercury or whatever with our fish oil. So a nice quality fish oil is not inexpensive and it doesn't look like there's much return on that investment. Now, that doesn't mean that eating fish is not worthwhile. See, what I think we've learned from this is that there was some health benefit to eating fish more frequently, to incorporating fish and seafood into our diets that we couldn't get just from sucking the oil out of the fish and taking that as a pill. Yeah. So it's still recommended to have a couple of servings of fish every week. And the data still show that that health habit right there can have a really positive effect on your long-term disease risk and on your mortality and um, even things like your risk of depression and joint pain and brain health. Unfortunately, though, it doesn't seem to have been exportable into a supplement the way we all kind of assumed that it would. Well, that is absolutely new to me. And I'm so glad I asked you this question because I do have a new supplement of fish oil in my fridge ready to go. And I'm sure I'll just use it, but I way prefer myself to get some fresh fish caught here in Maui. And I much prefer that than taking supplements. Well, and you really have no excuse with that kind of a, a fish supply available to you. You know, I have people here that are in the landlocked Midwest. And believe me, that is not their, <laughs> their reality. But yeah, the fish oil supplement, it was a big disappointment to everyone, really. Well, then I would love to hear your thoughts on celery juice, because that has been the trend uh, for a couple of years now. It's been said to be a cure-all of a lot of chronic illnesses. It uh, helps digestion. It increases your energy. It clears your skin. 
I was wondering what your thought is on constantly juicing. Is it something you have to do daily? Is it something that, you know, you recommend once a week or do we really even need, need it at all? Or should we just be eating the celery sticks and other fruits and vegetables? Yeah, that whole celery juice thing is kind of a mystery to me. I don't understand how these ideas about what celery juice could do for you or would do for you got started. It really does seem to have been just a, an invention <laughs> on the part. And, you know, it really certainly became a fad and people were doing it. There's no reason to believe that anything that we know is in celery juice would be curative of anything whatsoever. I mean, it's got the same kinds of nutrients that other vegetables have. And whenever we can increase our vegetable intake, that usually has beneficial effects on us. But there was nothing special about celery. I'm sure that people did feel like if they did that consistently, they felt differently. I mean, there's nothing wrong with a good placebo effect, right? My goodness, I wish I had, I could, you know, I, sh I should have, I could have bought stocks in, you know, in celery growing. I mean, every time I went to the store, it was gone. I'm like, oh, I got my hands on the last one. Did you enjoy the way it tasted? No, I actually did not enjoy the taste at all. It was really hard to get used to for me. I was just kind of like drinking it fast and diluting it with some water or biting into a lemon afterwards. Oh my goodness. Well, maybe that's part of what drove that phenomenon because sometimes if something's really awful, then we think like, well, this must be good for me because I'm really not <laughs> enjoying it, you know? I think we can say in general, if a food fed diet or service sounds too good to be true, you can assume it is. Now, the, the next thing I would love to touch down on is collagen, because collagen is a big thing and everyone is buying collagen powder and pills and capsules. Now, I know that tons of food provides collagen too, without having to supplement. What kind of foods are your top three that provides most collagen? And what do you think about supplementing with collagen? Does it work? Foods don't really provide collagen. Collagen is a protein and it's a big protein. Collagen is, is in foods. You know, we have foods that like bone broth or otherwise known as stock. Okay. We were making bone broth for a couple of centuries before we branded it that way. It's just boiling meat bones to, to make a, a stock out of that. That contains natural collagen, but it doesn't provide collagen for our bodies because collagen is such a big protein that when we take it in, our bodies as part of the digestive system are going to break it down into much, snip it up into little peptides and little amino acids so that it can be absorbed into the body. And then the body's going to do with that what it does with all protein, which is take all of those little snippets and recombine them as necessary to make the protein it needs. So when we take in collagen in our food, that doesn't mean we're then going to have more collagen in our skin, more collagen in our joints. That is much more dependent on our body's collagen producing software. And the reason that our skin tends to sag a little bit and our joints get a little bit achy when we get older is that our collagen production slows down. It's like an old hard drive that just takes a lot longer to boot up its program. You know, it's just not as spiffy as it used to be. And, you know, I think of this like think of a car factory you know, a factory where they're manufacturing cars and the workforce has gotten kind of elderly and they can't assemble the cars as fast. And so fewer cars are coming out the end of the line. Well, speeding up the rate at which the parts come in to the factory is not going to help this situation because the workers can still only go as fast as they can go. And they've slowed down a little bit and just it's just going to create a big pile of raw materials at the front of the line. It's not going to get more cars spitting out the end. And it's a little bit like that with collagen. Our collagen making factories just slow down as we get older and supplying a whole bunch more raw materials 
isn't necessarily going to make those workers make collagen any faster. So what we can do to have more impact is to try to prevent the breakdown of collagen. The biggest thing that we can do is um, UV protection. UV, especially on the skin, really accelerates the breakdown of collagen. And that's what's responsible for a lot of skin aging. So rather than try to stuff more collagen into your cheeks from the inside <laughs> through your diet, <laughs> what you want to do is make sure that you're protecting your skin from UV rays to try to you know, keep the collagen that you have from breaking down. I'll say this about the dietary steps that we can take to enhance our ability to produce collagen. And that is that getting enough protein does matter. That's one of the ways in which we benefit from keeping our protein intake up as we get older. It doesn't have to be protein in the form of collagen, because remember, we're going to disassemble that anyway. Yeah. Just any form of protein, making sure that we're getting protein is going to help as much as it can. And the irony, because collagen is such a big supplement right now, is that as protein sources go, especially animal-based protein sources, it's one of the lowest quality protein sources in terms of the completeness of the amino acids. So I can recommend, you know, watching your protein intake, but if you're looking to increase your protein quality and quantity, I don't think I'd send you to a collagen supplement. I think I'd send you to eggs or whey protein or chicken or fish. Salmon. Okay. Well, that's clear. I'm just uh, crying a little bit here on the other <laughs> end. <laughs> As I'm I'm nearing 40, uh, obviously I want to hear that it works. Yeah. But no, I totally get it and it totally makes sense and there is no quick fix. And yes, we are constantly brought a new thing that we need in our life, something that has mm -hmm. not even been talked about maybe eight years ago. And then all of a sudden it becomes part of everyday's li everyone's life. And then we have to ask a question, is this really necessary? Is this actually working? And what is the quality of it? It sounds like we need to just look at better quality protein that are the building blocks of our body and will continue to upgrade that skin collagen software. <laughs> right. And that actually leads me to the next question too, because when we think about nutritional deficiencies, how can we detect them? That do we actually need to do some blood work at the doctors or do we get at home test kit and feel like, hey, you know, every now and then, would you recommend a test? No, I really wouldn't only because um, a lot of the things that they sell for home users have not been validated and we don't know for sure what the meaning of those tests are and what they indicate and how they should be interpreted. So I would definitely leave that for your doctor. But it may be useful to distinguish between an actual nutritional deficiency where your body is too low in a nutrient, which your doctor could detect with blood tests usually, and then they would know how to interpret the results of those tests and what other tests might need to be done and how to correct it. And they're actually pretty rare, Jill. I mean, with a couple of exceptions, people are often deficient in vitamin D because that's not a vitamin that we generally get from our diet. Yeah. Iron is another one that especially women in childbearing years can often be have an actual deficiency of. But the list of nutrients that we are likely to be deficient in is pretty short and pretty specific. It is true that there are nutrients that people are likely not to be getting adequate intake of, and that's a different situation. So you may have seen statistics that you know 80% of Americans don't have adequate magnesium intake. You know, I, I'm not sure. I just made that up. It might be 60%. I can't remember what the percentage is, but you know, a lot of Americans aren't getting enough magnesium or, or a lot of Americans aren't getting enough calcium or whatever. And we may hear that statistic and think, oh my gosh, we're deficient. We have a nutrient deficiency. It's a different term. So deficiency would be when we're actually too low in our body supply in order to do our body's work, pretty rare. And the other is your intake is, is not ideal. 
you know, to make sure that we meet your nutrient needs. So I just want to distinguish between the two. But no, I, I don't have a lot of confidence in at-home testing, either in the validity of it or in the ability of a non-professional to interpret and respond to whatever is coming out of those results. But I also don't think that we need to worry about nutrient deficiencies. Great. Well, then we don't need to waste our money and we can leave our worries behind. Now that leads to kale. We've been eating kale for years. It's been a go-to superfood. Now I hear that kale contains oxalates. Oxalates, when not cooked, it can have some toxic effects on your body. Ugh. Help. Well, um, I don't think anybody needs to worry about kale. And there are several things that people have brought up as concerns about kale, especially raw kale. Oxalates were one. Some people worried that it might be absorbing heavy metals out of the soil, like cadmium or arsenic, because kale is a crop that tends to sort of attract those metals. They're just in the soil naturally occurring, and more of them end up in the kale than in other vegetables. People worried that it might have a negative impact on thyroid function. So there were a lot of various concerns expressed about kale. And Jill, I think it was kind of inevitable. Kale was riding so high for so long, like sooner or later, people were going to have to try to take it down. So there were a number of charges. And I'm not worried about any of them because they would not be a factor for anybody who was eating even a marginally healthy diet and consuming kale in even marginally reasonable quantities. Now, if you were in a famine ravaged country in Africa and had no access to proper nutrition and you ate nothing but kale for two weeks, I could see a scenario in which that oxalic acid could lead to some mineral deficiencies or something, but I can't see that scenario happening anywhere here where people have reasonably good diets. They're not eating their weight in kale every day. We can relax. We can go ahead and we can eat our kale cooked or raw. But you know, these questions that you've been asking me about the kale and the fish oil and the celery, you know, I field so many questions like this. These are the questions that people have. And I think that people get tangled up in all of these sort of minute details and worried about things that are really not posing much of a concern. And it kind of distracts them from the basics, from what they can do just to make their diets healthier on an ongoing basis, something that they can be consistent with. And a little bit earlier in our conversation, you were saying, you know, look around and see what about your diet could you improve? And I loved that you said that instead of this quest to make our diets perfect. The, the goal is not to have a perfect diet. It's not necessary, but most of us have areas where we could improve. And they're usually a lot less complicated than, oh, I really need to avoid kale because I think I might be overdoing it on the oxalates. You know, most of us just need to concentrate to get five servings of vegetables every day. Most of us need to concentrate just to make sure that we are incorporating fish into our menus on a regular basis. The super basic stuff and not get so in the weeds with these details that are ultimately not that impactful. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Monica, for taking the time to talk me through all my burning questions. And I have more, but our time is up. And so if I may conclude this and just say to all the listeners, stay true to yourself, do your own research, feel your body, talk to your body, feed it well, take excellent care of yourself and your family. Don't worry too much and do the best you can every day. When you think you fall off the wagon for one meal, it doesn't mean the whole day is a waste. Just eat better the next meal. Choose again. You know, we're, we don't need to be perfect. 
but we will all benefit when we take better care of ourselves because when you feel good, you have a ripple effect on everyone that you're meeting and surrounding yourself with daily. And that is the difference that you can make in your life. I love that, Jill. What a, what a positive message. Monica, thank you so much. Everyone that needs more nutrition information and has more questions for Monica, please listen to her own podcast show, the Nutrition Diva podcast. And what is the other podcast that you're co-hosting, Monica? Yes. Well, you know, I am all about right now helping people translate information into action. You know, what we were talking about at the beginning of the hour. So important. And, and so my other podcast is called Change Academy. And it's really, and it's with Brock Armstrong, who was on your show a couple of months ago. My good friend Brock and I teamed up to create the Change Academy to do exactly what we started out today talking about. Like, how do we take this information and these things, these thoughts about what we want to achieve and translate them into sustainable positive change in our lives. It's kind of where the rubber meets the road. That's where I'm most excited right now and putting all of our energy. So yeah, if people are looking for more tools, they can pop open whatever app they're listening to us on right now and look for the Change Academy or the Nutrition Diva. And, you know, Jill, you, you said it's so hard to just know what to focus on and what to start with. And I thought so much about this. And I, a few years ago, I came up with a little game and we turned it into an app. It's called the Nutrition GPA. And basically it just asks you 10 questions, yes or no questions about what you ate today. And you get a grade for the day based on your answer to those 10 questions. And then it tracks your nutrition grade point average over time. And so for people who were just like, it's too much, I don't know what to focus on. I don't know what's most important. It's like, you know what? Just answer these 10 questions every day. And if you can keep your grade in the B range long-term, then you're done. You know you're eating a good enough diet. So for those that just really want to boil it down and get super simple, they can check that out in the App Store and see if that makes it a little bit more fun or a little bit more approachable. Oh, thanks for that. It totally makes it more simple and easy. And that's what we need. And do you have an Instagram account? I do. It's called The Nutrition Diva done. I'm already following yeah. you and I will continue to follow you and I may send you a couple emails and call you and text you for more questions. <laughs> you bet. Thanks to Monica Ryan Nagel for joining us on the show today. This episode was produced and edited by AJ Mosley, mastering by Steve Brickyberg. I hope you enjoyed this nutrient-packed episode as much as I did. If you liked this episode, make sure to subscribe to Life Done Better on whatever platform you listen to podcasts. Have a wonderful day, my friends, and I'll see you soon. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.